So I won't be in First Peter for at least a day and maybe for a while. I don't know. Um, in John 5.39, you don't have to flip there. You can go ahead and flip to John 1. Um, Jesus speaking to uh, these Pharisees, these self-righteous Jews who believed they were good enough that they had done what they needed to do, um, that they had you know, earned eternal life. And so in John 5.39, he says, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Okay? We've been doing our Wednesday night Bible study, and we've started in... Genesis, and we're up to about chapter 25. And as we're going through that, that's part of what we're looking for, is seeing where do they testify of Him. If you go to John chapter 1, John the Baptist has come on the scene and he's being asked by um, Jews and priests and Levites, saying, are you, are you him? Are you the Christ? And he answered to him plainly, no, I am not. He's just a voice in the wilderness, making the pathway straight. But there's one coming after him who is preferred before him. Whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose. I'm not willing to, not worthy to untie his shoe. And the very next day, John seeing Jesus coming unto him, saith, Behold, look, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I'll just deal with the world really quickly. Matthew one twenty one, and the angel came and said, He shall save his people from their sins. A Jew would read that and say, well, his people have got to be just the Jews. Right? And here John is revealing just the first glimpse of the radical idea that this Jesus, the one in whom all the nations of the world be blessed, right? that was the promise to Abraham, that he was going to take away the sins of the world of both Jew and Gentile. It was broader than just the people. But that title is what I'm interested in this morning. Behold, the Lamb of God. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me. So they asked, Are you the Christ? He said, No. There's a woman coming after me who is way better. That's the Christ. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the Christ. And the next day he's going to see him again. And he says the same thing. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And um, he gives a testimony before about how he was given a sign from heaven. He said, you will know it's him because you'll see the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove and descending upon him. And I saw that and bear record that this is the Son of God. So you've got the Son of God, the Christ, the anointed, also said Messiah. Right? Same word, same idea, the anointed, Messiah. The Son of God the Lamb of God. We're all talking about the same person. The second person in the Trinity, Jesus. Okay. So my question to you this morning is, 
Why is he called the Lamb of God? Go back to Genesis chapter 22. Why is he called the Lamb of God? And we are going to look this morning at the pattern that's revealed through Scripture. And it will be a slowly unfolding, kind of like a flower opens up. You've got the petals, you can see it on the outside. And as it grows and blooms, you get a clearer and clearer picture of what goes on. So if you've been with us on our Bible study on Wednesday nights, Genesis 22, we talked about this Wednesday. But just to set the stage, Abraham had been given a promise before he was 75 years old, back when he still lived in Ur of the Chaldees, down in southern Mesopotamia. And the promise was that you're going to leave, you're going to, you're going to do some things. You're going to leave your father's household. You're going to leave the land of your nativity where you were born. You're going to leave your kin, and you're going to go to a land that I tell you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. And all the nations of the world are going to be blessed by you and your seed. All right? That was before he was 75. He and his daddy and nephew travel to Haran, which is in northern Mesopotamia, not the land that he told them to, and they hang out there until he's 75, because that's when his daddy dies. And so he hadn't been fully obedient, right? He'd only left his home country, but he took his family with him, and when, once his father died, then he went into the land where he was told to, Canaan, right? He's been told he's going to be made a great nation, and for the next 25 years, inside that nation where he's supposed to be, he has no children. Now, he's already 75 years when he came in, and he's been told so, however long it was before he was 75, he's been told for probably three decades plus, there's going to be a great nation come out of you. <coughs> and how many kids does he have? Zero. Well, none through Sarah. When he's 86, he and his wife come up with a plan and they give a handmaid to him and say, well, here, we'll, we'll make this work. And they're trying to work it out for God, right? That's how Ishmael comes on the scene. But that was not the child that God promised. And God would get more specific as you're reading through there. He would say, it's going to come from your own bowels. It's going to come from your old wife. And Abraham is going to laugh at that. And say, well, she's old. Right? And I'm old. And he laughed within himself, right? And she laughed within herself later. Well, the Lord says, it's going to happen. She's going to have him. And you're going to name him Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. It's a little bit of a reminder. You didn't believe God. Right? Laughter. And so he's given the name, and still time passes. You have Ishmael. He's not the one. He's not the one promised. That was the man's workaround. There was a promise, a miracle that was going to happen. And here it is. Finally has happened. At 100 years old, this baby boy, Isaac, is born. Wow. All right? And then a little feller grows up a little bit, and he's weaned. Whatever age that is, I don't know. It doesn't say. He's weaned. He's no longer breastfeeding. His older brother Ishmael, who's about 14 at this time, is making fun of him, and he and his mama are cast out. And there's a whole allegory there between natural children of Abraham, the unbelieving Jews, and the spiritual children of Abraham, which includes natural Jews who believe, and all of us Gentiles. Lay that aside for today. There's going to be a passage of time, right? Just says many days that Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines. That's where they were hanging out near the well of Bathsheba. <clears throat> and then God comes to him in verse uh, 1 of 22. says, came to pass after all these things. So Isaac has grown up some. How much? I don't know. He's not weaned. Many days have passed. 
but his mother's still alive, so he's not 37 yet. So somewhere in that range, he's old enough to tote wood. I know that. And God tests him. He tests him and says unto him, Abraham, Abraham says, Behold, here I am. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early. This is very different than when he was first told to do some things, and it took him a matter of years to complete it. It really wasn't completed until later after he'd been in the land for quite a while and he finally split with Lot that he had finally obeyed in all the areas. So he's grown. He's matured. We we put Abraham as kind of superhuman pedestal, right? I could never be back there with them Old Testament saints. They're they're people just like you. All right? I hear the Lord has grown him and matured him enough to even where he's been given this very, very, very hard and seemingly impossible task. (coughs) Lord, you said Isaac specifically is the nation that's going to come out of him. This child that you've been promising me for 30-something years. And now you're telling me to go offer him for a burnt up sacrifice. But he doesn't him and haul. He doesn't go part of the way and camp out there for a few years. He doesn't go on a trip and take Ishmael. Right? That would be kind of our carnal response. Well, yeah, okay, I'll sacrifice his son, but not, not that. Right? God's very specific. Take Isaac... Thine only son, the son of promise of his wife, whom thou lovest, and get thee to Moriah. All right. So this is a very, very hard thing. And Abraham rose up early, saddled his ass, took two of his young men, got his son, cut the wood, rose up, and they went going. They went. On the third day, they were able to see the spot where the Lord had told him. Where is that spot specifically? Doesn't say. It says the spot that I'll tell you. And he saw that spot. All right. It's in the land of Moriah. And Abraham said, "Abide ye here to the men." With the donkey, the ass, and I, and the the lad, um, will go yonder and worship, and come again. So that's a we statement. We're going to go yonder. I didn't know Southern was biblical, right? We're going yonder. We're going to worship, and come again to you. We are going to come again to you. And in the New Testament, we would see that Abraham believe God's word so much about what he had promised through Isaac that even if he had to go through with this sacrifice, that the Lord was able to raise him up from the dead and continue with that promise. So Abraham took the word, put it upon Isaac his son, took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they both went together. And Isaac at this point, you know, obviously he's able to carry wood, he's able to talk, he says, uh, uh, My father... He says, here I am, my son. He says, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, this word lamb um, is the first time English word lamb is mentioned in Scripture. It, this word is a general term and it refers to lesser cattle. So it can be used otherwhere to refer to sheep or goats, but it's the smaller cattle. Okay? So where's the lamb? For a burnt offering. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now, Abraham was a prophet. 
The Lord had said that. He told the king Abimelech that he's a prophet. You don't mess with his wife. You give him back because he lied about that relationship. And he'll pray for you. And that was how Abimelech's people had their wounds healed because they'd all been shut up fast while the king of Gerar had Sarah within his household. He says, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And y'all know what happens. He builds the altar. He arranges the wood. He puts Isaac on it. He binds him. And he reaches out his hand to take that knife. He stretched forth his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out unto him, called unto him out of heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything to him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thine son, thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham looked up, looked up, looked, lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Abraham did not fall into the trap in this case of loving the gift that he'd received from God more than obeying the giver, the gift giver. We all have things in our life that we care about very deeply. They're all a blessing from the Lord. He's more important. The gift giver is more important than the gift. And so he was he was able to follow through with that. And, and that was the obey, obedience is what he was being tested on. Did he love and willing to obey the Lord more than caring about this son, this son that he'd been promised, that God had promised him for so many years. He'd been waiting for so long and that he loved him in so, such a way. And so the Lord did provide himself a lamb. And so in this case, it was a ram. This was an adult male sheep. Okay, It was caught um, in the thicket. And there was a substitution made. Right? Isaac was taken off that altar. And the ram was offered in its place. It was provided by God. It was offered in the stead of his son. Never use that expression, instead. Right? was taken in its place. Sometimes when folks pray, they'll say, in the room instead, you know, Christ was offered. That's what it's talking about here, is that there was a substitution made. Now there's, there's dual um, figures in this story. There's two different ways you can approach this. One is looking at it as the love of the father, Abraham, for his only son, that son of promise, and he was willing to, to go through with this and to not spare him. And then the son's obedience, I don't know about y'all, but if I was in Isaac's shoes, he might have had a hard time tying me down. (laughs) I'm not sure I would have been an easy um, target or mark. But even in Isaac, you see this pattern of submission to the Father's will and obedience. And so in this figure, you have... What God the Father did 
with his son. Only the difference is it didn't stop. He went all the way through with it. He willingly offered his son. And the son willingly submitted and obeyed. That's one figure. The other figure is in Isaac versus this ram. In that scenario, Isaac, that promised child, that loved child, he represents you and me and every other single member of God's family of the elect. It was promised. God knew them. He knew their names before they were ever born. Notice who's not included in this equation. Ishmael. He's not on this mountain. That ram was not substituted for him. Was he a natural son of Abraham? Yeah. There are many natural people in the world. But God's children, they're the ones that this ram was substituted for. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Permanent death. Permanent eternal death is permanent separation from God. But instead of receiving that, there was one that was provided by God Himself. A lamb was provided. God will provide Himself a lamb. And that lamb is Jesus Christ. He will provide Himself a lamb. He will substitute that son, that ram, that lamb for all of His children. Paying their price on the cross. So this is your first you know, closed flower, right? Think about that. Your first glimpse at the Lamb of God. And it's still kind of veiled. We can understand this really clearly because we've got the whole Scripture. Okay? So go forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 12. Alright? So between Abraham and Joshua's death, I think we added it up as about 360 years, and you've got your period within... Uh, Egypt, and folks will fight along and hard about that, and so I won't make any hard and fast declaration, but they've been there a good while, and now you've been called out, and the Lord says, this is how you're going to come out. I've done all these plagues, there's one more coming. It's the destroying angel who's going to come through, and he's going to kill the firstborn of everybody to whom the blood of a lamb is not covering that household. So if you go to Exodus chapter 12... And in verse 3, we'll see um, what's described there. Saying, On the tenth day of this month, take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. If they be too little, you get together with your neighbors. Your lamb shall be... Alright, you've got some characteristics on this lamb now. A lamb shall be without blemish, spotless. No flaw. You can't take your three-legged lamb or the one with one ear or the one that's got the mange or the fur or whatever, right? Without spot, without blemish, a male of the first year, you shall take him out of the sheep or the goats. All right, so here the the word lamb is a different lamb. Um, It's not just a general term, but it involves um, one who is just young enough to butt heads. Okay, but it's still, um, it could be either a sheep or a goat. But it's a male got to be a male of the first year, young, and it's got to be without blemish. You're going to take it for a time, and then you're going to kill it on the set day, and you'll strike the side post and the upper post of the house with his blood. And that night, they shall eat the flesh to flesh, 
roast with fire, and unleavened bread, and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. He shall not eat it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth unto it in the morning you shall burn with fire. Okay, And they were going to do that, and this is right before they're going to be brought out of Egypt. All right, So there is a deliverance, an actual deliverance that is going to occur. And so the way they were structured to do it is like it was a burnt offering, right? You had to roast it with fire. You couldn't just cook it any other way. Don't eat it raw. You had to um, roast it. You had to eat it with unleavened bread. Remember, they had all their stuff bound up. So they're kneading troughs where they let their bread rise. That were all tied up. They're eating this with their shoes on because it was time to go. Um, and so they were eating with instructions of unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And so you can see um, within that picture the pain and the suffering that the picture that's pointing to, all right, on the cross with what he's going to go through. This is that's that's what it's leading to. It's leading to him being offered on the lamb, and then we've also got the communion of his bread, um, of the of his uh, body that's going to be broken, and that, that picture will be expanded more. But the, the bitterness that is this is rough, okay. And again, it's a substitution, but it's not just for one person, right? Not just for Isaac, the representative of the family of God. But it's for those within the house, right? The household of God, right? And that blood, that lamb is going to die, and you have to eat it then. You're a participating in that sacrifice. It is very intimate. This is not a far off, removed experience. This is you are part of it. Okay, you are eating its flesh and and eating this bread with the bitter herbs. And while that blood is over you, what happens? Death passes through and around, and there's much destruction and death and pain and sorrow. But because of that lamb, it doesn't touch you. There's already been a death paid for you. And so that picture points to the final judgment of where when we stand before God, it's like we've got a doorpost over us of this blood covers you. And that wrath and judgment has no place on you. It's already been paid. Okay? Now this would go on to be an annual celebration, right? The Passover feast. The celebrations are a remembrance of what happened here. This was real. This was an actual deliverance, right? You're being taken out of bondage, taken to a promised land, and the destruction and the the sorrow and death is not being laid upon you. What better picture can you have for Christ who's taken you out of bondage to your slavery? He's taken you to a promised land. It's going to take you a little while to get there, right? But the destruction and the judgment and the wrath will not come upon you because it is the Lamb of God, okay? Go a little farther forward to Numbers chapter 28. Numbers 28, verses 3 through 8. This is describing the daily sacrifice that under the Old Testament ceremonial law they were required every morning and every evening sacrifice one lamb. 
Okay, here's the characteristics. Um, they had to be without spot. Should be a, for a continual burnt offering. One lamb in the morning, the other in the evening, along with the tenth part of an ephah of flour of meal. So you've got this bread component with it. And also mingled with oil, you've got the anointing component within it. Uh, as a continual burnt offering, which is ordained on Mount Sinai for sweet savor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord, and the drink offering, which shall be a fourth part of a hen for one lamb, and the holy and in the holy place thou shalt cause the strong wine to be poured into the Lord for a drink offering. So, in the Passover you had the lamb, you had the unleavened bread, and you had the bitter herbs. Now here, that deliverance had happened, and yet you're still offering a lamb every day without spot. In addition to that, you're offering is flour with oil, and you've got wine. Y'all see the picture that comes into our, our communion service where it's pointing to that, that blood that's going to be shed, at, shed, the body that's going to be broken, the oil. I mean, that's what the Christ means is the anointed, the Messiah. All of this wrapped up in this picture, and they had to do it every day. How often were they pointing to the Christ in the Scriptures by their obedience to the law? First thing every morning, last thing every day, in the morning and the evening. It was all pointing to Christ. Now here it's um, it's a lamb, it's without spot, again. Um, and this is specifically getting into um, sheep. Can't no goat, no goat anymore, just sheep. And so the specificity of what does that lamb have to be just gets more and more specific, right? That perfect lamb. What's the significance of being without spot, without blemish? Jesus was sinless, not only in his actions while I was here, but also in his nature. Right? If he was just a man like you and I, even if he could live somehow a morally perfect life, he would still have been corrupt, right? flawed by our sin nature. From that's, that's what we get from Adam, right? From the very moment of our conception and sin, we are conceived. Right? He didn't have that. Right? He was the perfect man. He was still perfect God. That's hard to wrap your head around. But there was no flaw in him. No spot, no blemish, no sin, not one. No character flaws. He was the perfect Lamb of God. Okay? So that was a daily sacrifice. And then, every you know, Sabbath, they had to double it. Alright? So there all these repetitions of that Lamb, that Lamb, that Lamb, that Lamb. Alright? Now go forward... To Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Y'all are most likely very familiar with this particular chapter of Isaiah. If, even if you haven't read the rest of it, you've probably heard somebody preach through Isaiah 53. Because it's one of the clearest pictures of the suffering that Christ would go through. It's painful. It's graphic. And startling. And so when you get to verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. This picture shows you the willing. Submission to the Father's will 
to go through with this. He's going to go with, through the phony trial, and he's being slapped, and he's being mocked. And though he has all power and could destroy everybody that stood against him without breaking a sweat, right? he still willingly submitted. And he didn't so much as open his mouth. I mean, And Pilate kind of marveled at that. He said, don't you know I've got the power to take your life from you and to spare you? And all he'd say back to us, if any power you've got is given to you from heaven. Okay? But he is a lamb to the slaughter. He, that, that gentle and mild idea of you don't have to wrestle that lamb. You don't have to, I mean, imagine you've got a convict who you're dragging to the guillotine, right? And this is the last moment. So they can see the blade. And if you think there's any hope of escape, what are you going to be doing? Trying to get it rough and bucket, you know, just right. But that's not the picture of the Lamb of God here. Gentle, peaceable, submissive, all the way. Now, how do we explicitly know this is referring to Christ? Go to Acts chapter eight. This is um, one of the first deacons. Was also a preacher. His name was Philip. He'd been going through Samaria, and the Lord. Uh, the Holy Spirit sent him down to uh, go run up beside a chariot that's in a route. Right? The Ethiopian uh, eunuch um, reported to Queen Candace, but he was a man of high authority. He's sitting in there and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading it out loud. And Philip's running alongside and says, You understand what you're saying? And he says, How can I accept some man guide me? And he asked that Philip would come up and sit with him. And the place that he was reading was just what we just read. Isaiah 53, 7. The place of the scripture he read was, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, whom speaketh the prophet of? You know, who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about someone else? And then Philip began, opened his mouth, and began at the same scripture, and preached unto him, Jesus. That was speaking of what Jesus would do, and now Jesus has done that. Jesus has already died and been resurrected and been around for 40 days and then ascended up, and so you're in the early church after that. And so he's saying, that was him. This is what he did. And he began to preach to him Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and explained, here's the suffering that it was talked about, and here's how he fulfilled it, and here's what he's done, and this is what he said, and he's coming back. And so by the time of it, they got to a certain place where there was a bunch of water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, you may, thou mayest. And the answer said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You can't believe that unless Christ is already in your heart, right? If he, if he hasn't opened up your heart and the Holy Spirit's not dwelling with it, you can't really believe that. You can say that, but you can't really believe that. And so he says, and he commanded the chariot, stop. They've been going this whole time, right? And he went down. They both went down. They both went down into the water. It doesn't sound like a sprinkling to me, right? And both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And the word baptized means to immerse, to fully whelm. You ever been overwhelmed? Right? Baptized in something, right? And he baptized them. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip and the eunuch and saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Okay? The Lamb of God. You know, you can... Take that scripture and you can preach a whole message on it, but the focus and all of it is Jesus Christ. 
the Son of God, right? The Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. Alright? Go over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your feigned conversation received by tradition from your fathers, nothing in your pagan idolatrous practices or silver or gold, nothing could redeem you. Nothing could save you. But, what were you redeemed with? The precious, valuable, highly valuable, blood of Christ, the anointed. As of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. He had no flaws. He had no errors. That's who you were redeemed by. That blood of the Lamb of God, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. God the Father and God the Son, they they had the covenant where they knew what was going to happen. That Jesus was going to come and He was going to save His people. But he's just now being revealed fully, and that's what the great thing about the New Testament is: is it's a revealing, all right? The gospel is showing you; it's bringing it to light of what great things God has done way before the foundation of the world, and how it's worked all the way up to here, and how it'll work toward the end. The un- I guess there is no end to everlasting, but was manifest in these last days for you. Okay, so. Given all that, knowing those things allows you to get to something like Revelation chapter 5 and have an understanding about what is he talking about? Part of it, I'm not going to say I understand everything about Revelation. I'm not that arrogant. But Revelation chapter 5, this is you know John, uh, the Apostle John, not John the Baptist. Apostle John, who'd been um, put over on the island of Patmos, he's... Uh, had this first vision where he sees um, Jesus walking among the seven candlesticks and you get all these instructions to the seven churches. And then in chapter 4, it shifts. A door is open in heaven and the uh, voice, the first voice which he had heard, which was like a trumpet, says, Come up hither. And immediately I was in the Spirit and beheld a throne that was set in heaven. And so there you're getting this description of of what it's like to be in the throne room of God. So you can read chapter 4 and get all that. And so... Um, in chapter 5 it says, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? The answer, No man. Not even one in the Greek. Not even one. In heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look therein. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look therein. Is there anybody worthy? No man. And one of the elders, I can imagine him kind of patting him on the back, saying, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was a descendant of Judah. He was a descendant of King David. He had the right to the throne. And I beheld in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, 
stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So you have this symbolic representation of Jesus Christ. And horns, if you read through Scripture, you'll see the pattern that horns refer to power and seven refers to completeness. The Lamb who was slain, who has complete power. And you've also got the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So you've got the Holy Ghost there involved too. right? He's standing there and He came and He took the book out of the right hand of Him that sat on the throne. So you've got the reference to God the Father. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, each having them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Think about the sweet odors in heaven. When you're praying, there are sweet odors in heaven contained in these vials. And they sung a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain, to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. He did. He died. He allowed himself to be killed. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. He's worthy. He was slain. He has redeemed. Not may redeem. Hopes to redeem. Sure wishes He could redeem. He did. Thou hast redeemed. That's, that's a completed work. And beheld, I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. And the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. It's a pretty big congregation. Out of every kindred, nation, and tongue, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, and He lives now, to receive power, to receive riches, to receive wisdom, and I'm adding the to receive, but it's implied. To receive strength and honor and glory and blessing. Who do you serve today? Do you serve yourself? Many days we do. Are you worthy for those things? No man is worthy. But this Lamb, this Lamb of God whom God has provided for Himself to substitute on His people's behalf to pay the price for the, the, price for the righteous wrath. Right? God would have been fully righteous to pour out His wrath upon every human. He didn't have to spare any of them. But He said God spared not. He, he, he didn't withhold them. Right? Not sparing His words. Not sparing His only Son. And so now, on the other side of this, you have the Lamb who's in heaven, and He's worthy. He's worthy to receive all power. All power is His, whether you recognize it or not. 
All riches are His. It all belongs to Him. Try to give something to God that He don't already own. All wisdom. Sometimes we think we're smarter than God. If He just listened to our plans, things would be a whole lot better. Is that all wisdom? All knowing. All strength and honor, dignity held in high esteem. He's worthy of it. Glory and blessing. That blessing, that's the word we get the word uh, eulogy from. To speak well of, speak highly of, to bless. Do we bless the Lamb each day with our mouth and with our thoughts and with our actions? And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne Father and unto the Lamb forever and ever. That's whom we serve. Go forward one more, uh, two chapters to chapter 7. I'll just jump in in verse 9. This is after six of those seals have been opened. And there's large things that happen when the seals are open. And this is getting to the wrap-up of the Lamb coming back. But don't mistake the magnitude. If you go read those, go look at the magnitude of the things that are happening. It's easy for somebody to say, Oh, well, there's something going on in the world. Well, it's got to be the Lord coming back. And there may have been, you know, six, seven, eight hundred people, a thousand people died or whatever. But you go look at this. We're talking a quarter of the population on the globe dying. Big, big, big uh, events. Anyway, six of the seals have been opened. You get to the seventh one, and um, those that are still alive on the earth, there's going to be a ceiling that goes on. It says, After this I beheld a great multitude, which no man could number. Right, You're 10,000 times 10,000s of thousands of thousands. No man can number it, which is the same thing that God told Abraham, right? Not just limited to the natural Jews. That oh, that family of Abraham, the spiritual family, you can count the stars. Well, if you can count those, you can count the number in the family of God. No man could number. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues and denominations, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. Now my reading of that is that salvation is being ascribed. Who caused salvation? Who is the source, origin, executor, everything? God alone. Right? We have most of our error in Scripture is when we try to take what God did completely by Himself and put us into the equation. Okay. Salvation to our God, which sit upon the throne and under the Lamb. And all the angels stood about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne in their faceship and worshipped God and saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered unto me, saying, What are these that are arrayed in the white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He's like, You've been here longer than I do. You, you, you would know. 
And he said, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Now that tribulation, that could be referring to the trials that are going to occur right before it all wraps up. That can also refer to your life. Right? Our lives here below are full of pain and suffering and sin. Right? And when that's over, that's when you enter into rest. And when you enter into that rest, you're before the throne of God and serving day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. And they shall hunger no more. Right? The man below, the God is His belly. Right? That's, that's carnal man. You're working for your next meal, whether you think it or not. I mean, we're, we're very rich here, and that's kind of removed, but you, you, you don't eat for a day or two. You'll get motivated to go find some food. Right? Whether that's working honestly or stealing. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. We've never had you know, a drought or famine that's so bad that there's just no water and nothing growing. We've never experienced that. That's, that's a reality. I, I saw some nut who tried to do a Jesus fast where you don't eat or drink anything for 40 days. You know what happened to him? He died. He died. Apparently the previous two folks who tried it as well, they died. You're, the fact that Jesus could do that was a miracle. The fact that Moses could go 40 days without eating or drinking, that was a miracle. Don't tempt God. Okay, Your body is designed to need input of both food and more often, regularly, water. But there will hunger no more, nor thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Why? For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. All the way back at the beginning, with one lad having his life spared and a lamb in its place, that first glimpse of what great things God had already foreordained what his son would do and it draws through it's pointing to it it's pointing to it it's a daily reminder there's a sparing of it with the Passover and the judgment not falling down on those people that were covered by the blood all the way until you get to Christ and what he came and he lived and he lived that perfect life and he was full of grace and glory and he was willing and he was submissive and he was meek to the Father's will he knew what was going to happen And he still was submissive to allow himself as God of the universe, one who created all things. There's nothing created that wasn't created by him to allow his creatures to take his life, to be slain. And to take upon, to step into your room, your stead, instead of us bearing the wrath of God, he bore it for us in his own body. And then he's ascended up into heaven and that's where he is until he returns. And he will return. And the peace that awaits us because of his work, that's what we're looking forward to. That's the real peace that passes all understanding. Lord, how can I, an unworthy sinner, dwell in your presence? 
Well, by your own, you can't. But by His completed work, absolutely you can. And will. And you can read more in Revelation to see more about that picture of what that will be like. I mean, it's just still glimpses. I mean, you can't can't describe the magnitude of the order of perfection that will be there and to be in the presence of the Father. Um, but it's going to be great. You take your best best thought, it's better than that. Just thinking about eternity, sometimes, oh, well, that's a long time. What if, what if I get bored? You won't get bored. Right? It's perfection forever. That lamb... We'll feed them. Whether we need natural food or not, I don't know. There are some trees that are blooming and producing fruit, so it may be. But it may be just eating for pleasure rather than a necessity. But the Lord Lord is there. That lamb is there. The one who loved you before you knew you were you. And died for you. And He's the one who will care for you and lead you to those fountains of living waters. God shall wipe away all their tears. Tears are a mark of this world. That's how we process hard things. That's how we experience pain and sorrow. There's no sorrow or pain there. And that's because of the Lamb of God and His great and mighty work. Thank you all for your time and attention. Anybody have a...